What's going on, guys? Welcome to In The Zone. I'm your host, Garrison Roy. And if you're new to the show, welcome. We have uh, several different types of segments. We have full-length interviews, which is what today's is. We have rants. We have mental minutes to help you stay mentally in the zone. Deep dives into educational stuff, which will kind of go hand-in-hand for this full-length interview today. And if you got any uh, future topics, guests, or even some questions that you want covered on the podcast, you can email those in at in the zone podcast one two three at gmail.com. And yeah, share the show because this only grows through word of mouth. I don't run ads or sponsorships or anything. So basically, if you share it, I know that it's good. If you don't share it, then I guess it sucked and you guys aren't interested in it. So basically how it rolls. Um, but yeah, for today, we have a really awesome guest. Looking forward uh, to this conversation a lot. It's uh, Garrett Baker, who now is just recently. Uh, rolled into a, a new, uh, I guess, really entire role. It's called the integration pitching coach for the New York Mets. What's going on, Garrett? How's it going, Garrison? I'm, I'm excited, to, uh, excited to have this emergent, emergent conversation. Oh, yeah. Love it. Dude, well, yeah, I, I guess we, we first connected about this time last year when we were doing the, uh, the Movement Academy, of course, with Emergence. And we were like, oh, hey, another baseball guy, you know? So we were, yeah. you know, connecting and, and talking shop about some stuff. And, um, you know, it's it's definitely opened up my eyes and right about the same time when I started this podcast too. Um, you know, but let's kind of talk a little bit about your, I guess, if you want to talk, touch on playing career a little bit, you can but leading up into to, to where you are now and what, you know, kind of led you down this path. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's definitely, you would say pretty typical. We're here on a lot of these podcasts that like my playing career didn't take off and didn't go as far as I wanted it to. So you naturally, I kind of got into coaching. Right. So, sure. I mean, just to touch on that, I, I went to, I went to Cedarville university, um, small scholarship, small school out in um, middle of cornfields at Ohio um, division two. So um, had, had a couple good years um, in the beginning, but very average back and forth. And then it was kind of like my junior year. I started to kind of figure some stuff out and started to realize, okay, maybe there's there's more to more than training. There's running miles on miles on miles. Um, and that's kind of like the first light bulb that kind of went off. It's like, hey, just going for runs every day isn't necessarily like helping my pitching as much as I would hope it would. Um, yeah. Which I think a lot of people eventually got to that realization if they were on the same path I was. Um, but that being said, started to started to lift more, started to kind of like pay attention to like, hey, like I can build some strength, build some power, I can move a little quicker. Um, and start started doing a little better, but unfortunately that that kind of coincided with me tearing my UCL. Um, so hmm. which is would be considered negative, but like a lot of people again, like that's the time, right? You can really you, you take have to take a step back, you don't have a choice. So that's where I kind of took the step back and that's when I really kind of dove in like head first, had an internship um, at a local uh, baseball training facility where I was able to work a lot with pitchers um, and at the same time work a little bit in the weight room. And then also like was able to train every morning and kind of like be under the guidance of somebody, I guess, for the first time that really knew what he was doing, um, which was really cool. So he was kind of right, right. The program for me. Um, and yeah, so was, that, that kind of. 
Um, so his name's John Davis. So he runs Powerhouse, um, Powerhouse Training in East Elemental, Massachusetts. I'll give him a little plug. Um, worked with him for many years after the fact, um, which is always cool. Whenever you train somewhere and then you go back and work work there, you know there's something good there. Um, no doubt. Because you don't, you don't want to leave the place. Um, but yeah, so that, that was really cool. And that also coincided with me um, working with a travel ball team at the exact same time. So I'm working with a ton of athletes, training myself. And then starting to realize, like, I spent a lot of times just like sitting upstairs and back in the, back in the day, you, you just look through all these YouTube videos and like, I know at the time, like top velocity was putting a ton of stuff out, driveline just started putting stuff out. So I'm like, just trying to gather like literally any information you can, um, which I think pretty, pretty much I've talked to a bunch of pitching coaches about my age, like 20, 28, 29, 30, similar journeys and who they looked into at that time. Um, but like all this new information. And then I started applying it to some, some of my athletes and it was like, Holy smokes. Like, just like I missed all this stuff, like they're, they're not getting it. And now I can share it with them and I can see how they can get better. And it, it just kind of like started this like spark in my, it's like, Hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and I guess I'll preface this too. Like I have a younger brother who's six years younger than me. So like I was able to coach his teams growing up a little bit. So I kind of like already had the coaching bug a little bit. Um, but this is like the moment where it's like, Oh shoot, like this is cool. Like, like all this stuff I'm learning about now I can go apply. And a lot of it was focused on like strength conditioning and a lot of the, you could say like the mechanics or mm-hmm. the delivery um, of the pitching motion. And that's what I kind of dove into, but that led me into my senior season. I was still, still trying to rehab, but also training a little more aggressively. And then first outing out, uh, came back in 11 months. So rehab went really well, felt really good through the whole thing. First outing out, popped my first 90, hit 91 for literally the first time in my entire life. And it was like, okay, well, I feel like that verified the training I've been doing worked at least somewhat here. And that sure. that's just kind of continued, kind of continued from there. Um, and then um, played a little independent ball um, again, nothing, nothing special. And then that actually kind of led me into another path where I started realizing, Hey, I feel like I'm out training everybody. Like, I feel like my routine's better than everybody. I feel like I'm more physically prepared per se than everybody. Um, but I never feel good anymore. Um, like, and anybody who's made that transition from a seven day rotation to a five day rotation, it's a big difference. Um, so that, that kind of like smacked me in the face and I realized I was missing something else, which I tabbed at the time as the mental game, which led me into starting a master's degree in sports psych, um, which took me down a two year road, which, which was actually a really cool, cool experience. Um, did some research on like internal, external focus of attention at that time, um, and then at the same time I started coaching college and that kind of led me in like the, the quick, the quick view from there, I coached at a D3 for a year, a division two for three and a half. So that's where I spent a lot of the time. And that's where if you, if you'd ask like some of my players that were with me the whole time, like you see like these shifts in how I was coaching and how it changed and shaped in different ways, which is, would be kind of cool. Anytime I talk to them or if you, anybody were to talk to them about like what we started doing, what we we're doing by the end of those three years, um, kind of cool to see how my coaching journey went there. Um, following those three and a half years, went down the inspiration Academy for a year, which is, um, I guess the best way to put it is similar to like IMG, like there's a post-grad Academy and a high school there. So you basically trained a wide variety of athletes. Like I, I hands on, like you talk like 60, 60 post-grad athletes, 60 high school, um, and middle school athletes almost every single day, which was a really unique experience. Um, a lot of and kids. then, yeah, no, a ton, a ton of kids, which is really cool since it, it tests you, tests your, I would say dexterity as a coach, because you're, you're 
having the post-grad kid you, you there for a year, very clear intentions. Then you have this junior high kid or this middle schooler that like obviously still growing in the development and still trying to figure his way. And like, just trying to have fun playing the game. Um, and just got, you know, like some kids that were even just forced to do it. They didn't want to be there, but you're still trying to figure out how they get them engaged and enjoy it while they're there. Um, but yeah, after that went, went to Tyler junior college for four months, really enjoyed my time there. Um, I can't say enough good things about, about Tyler junior college and what they're doing over there. Um, what coach Ren's got going, but then got a call, um, about this potential gig with the Mets ended up through some conversations, ended up thinking it was a really good spot, um, for me at this time. And then, yeah, took that, took that in November and that kind of leads me to, to where I'm here. So bounce, bounce around in the last couple of years, but it's been a, it's been a fun journey. Yeah. Hell of a journey, man. That's really cool. You know, just kind of even having the awareness of your coaching, I guess, shifting is really cool, you know, and some coaches have stuck to their guns, so to speak, and stayed the same pretty much all the way through or, you know, whatever they did, I guess, guys that we played for, some of them were like, oh, this is the way that I did it. when they weren't really open-minded to anything else other than that. But um, also to kind of circle back on that too, is, you know, you were exposed to the the top bees or the, the drive lines and stuff like that from YouTube videos. And I think, you know, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here as far as the ecological component, I guess you could say, is that also kind of shaped the way you viewed movement, right? Because you were very, uh, or those videos were very motor system or very person, um, you know, individual centric and didn't really, you know, take into account or maybe didn't respect the environment or the task nearly as much, Um, you know, yeah, no, yeah, no, for sure. And that's, that's where I think it's, it's super interesting again, talking about how my, my coaching has shifted, especially within this last year, ever since like we, we both went on a journey with emergence and like, you know, Tyler, Tyler and Sean, I'll shout them out. Like they, they craft how they do the movement Academy, very personal to you, which we should do with any athlete. But one of the first things they, they try to like kind of push me on is like, Hey, it seems like you're very, very focused on the motor system and like if you look at skill itself like there's a lot more than just like looking at how this guy moves from like a side view there's like a lot more to being a skillful mover which again like at the time like i kind of understood but not fully because they're talking about hey there's this this cognitive system and this perceptual system it's all intertwined to create movement and like again like because i think in the baseball world we're so i guess tunnel focused on just like looking at, Hey, this is what the best move looks like. This is the most efficient thrower in our mind. This is the best looking swing. And we just view it like, like from this front view, side view, back view, and all we're doing is looking at the movement itself. And I think that's what you see on Twitter, Instagram and all that. Um, It was, it took me a while to like really grasp that idea. But then once, once I understood that, like it, it completely shaped how I, how I view everything as far as like what actually a skillful mover is and what that may look like and how it lives and breathes within a game versus just like I can watch a bullpen and like, Oh, that's yeah. He's a good mover. Is he like, he may look smooth, but does maybe, that maybe specifically mean he's a good bullpen. mover? Yeah, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and one, one term that I think just kind of blew me away, you know, referring back to my notes recently, it was like confluence, right? The relationship of all yeah. the systems working together. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like that's kind of what we want is for everything to be, blowing and working together and there's no restrictions or no, you know, jerks or no, you know, um, you, you know, call it whatever you want. It's, there's, there can be 
little roadblocks or kinks in the water hose in any of those systems that could affect, you know, how movement emerges or how they try to solve a problem. You know, for example, like how are they going to get this header out? Oh, hey, well, actually, I'm not cognitively present. I just saw my ex-girlfriend walk by behind the dugout and give my teammate, you know, kiss through the <laughs> through the fence. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of pissed off now. And then I launch one into the yeah. backstop. You know, it's like, yeah, there, there's little things. I'm, that's a very extreme example. But, you know, there's there's a lot of other nuances to that. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a, that, that's real though, because I I remember just thinking back to like my own my own career, and I guess to to really make this the idea of live and breathe. I think this is like the perfect one. There was this my first year of independent ball, um, and why I thought it was the mental game, and it it was sort of the mental game, but not in the way I used to view the mental game. And we can get into that later if we want to. Okay, um, yeah. But yeah. nice. Um, the there was like this one place in water. I think it's Waterbury, New York. Um, I think is that it's an old minor league park and we were playing up there and it was after my, after my first start. And I, I, I told you, like, I thought it was the best pitch in the world, like tore it up, like seven innings, 11 Ks. Like I was dialed, like gave up one run, like all our other pitchers. Like I was the fifth starter in our rotation. All the other pitchers struggled, like absolutely was feeling myself thought I was like, Oh, if I keep doing this, like I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody else is going to call me or pick me up or whatever. Next outing out, get the water berry. And after, or kind of like during the game, like I started feeling like it's a little cramping in my lat, like I, it was really hot. And like, I probably threw more pitches than I should have because from the time college was done to the time we started up season, like I hadn't had a start. I had thrown bullpens, but that's it. And 20 pitches doesn't prepare you for 120 pitches. Right. So, um, like I just fatigued, um, real bad. And like, I could not get this knot out of my lap. So initially that's like, that's all that's in my head. That's all I'm thinking about is this knot. Then I go out to the mound. And like, I'm still thinking about how that's affecting me. Like my big thing was like, I fly down the mound at that time and I'm gonna try to blow up by you. I'm gonna throw my breaker really hard. Um, but I was like, this is holding me back. I can't move as fast. And so in my head, like, I'm like, oh crap, I can't, I can't even, can't move fast. How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to do anything as good as I, I thought I could? Like, I'm, this is gonna be a terrible game. And then the mound starts having this massive hole. I keep getting stuck in the mound. There's a sun that's coming up from behind the backstop that as I'm, it's kind of like slightly offset. So as I'm moving forward, it like hits me in the eyes and then I finish the pitch. So like I lose visual of anything of any sort as I'm going. And like all these things are coming at me once and what we call constraints on movement. Like mm-hmm. all those are happening at me at this exact same time. And I guess where all my attention, attention was, it was on all the other things and getting out was like the last thing I was thinking about. Yeah. I wanted to get out and I wanted to make sure like my erase to look good at the end of the day, but like where I was placing my attention and what I was allowing happen, like was awful. And just to think back now, what I could have potentially done now, now that kind of like going to this ecological idea and like manipulated constraints and how constraints shape behavior. Like those are all constraints I was facing it. Yeah. There was a, there's a oh, knot yeah. in my lap. I could throw through it. Like I can, like light was shining in my face constraint. Like, can I still throw pitches for sure? Like there was a big hole. Like, can I still, can I still find a solution? Can my movement adapt to that? Like, now I think it could, but back then it couldn't because I was just trying to do the same thing over and over and over. So that's all, the reason I thought I was good, which kind of was, um, but it wasn't within adaptability or dexterity where I could solve any emerging problem within the environment. Right. Which I think this view has helped shape like me just even thinking back to that. I was like, that's what I was missing right there. 
Like I didn't train in a way that allowed me to overcome that confluence. Like you're talking about of constraints that were placed upon me in that moment, which again, like now looking back, I was like, if I had figured that out, like maybe, maybe I could actually have a decent season, but ended up not being great after, after the first game, but is what it is. (laughs) No. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really awesome how you kind of described all of that because, you know, you have those little things that pop up in games, you know, potholes being a really big one and if your your mindset is or the way you're viewing your your pitching mechanics is that it has to be you know picture perfect or repeatable or whatever it is you know like oh well now there's a hole in the mound so that's why and like you you do the blame game and all this stuff of like why you're not pitching well versus just figuring it out you know yeah and yeah me going to junior college before i was like you know that was a big thing for guys at that level are just like, Hey, you know what? We don't got all the fancy stuff. Who cares? Figure it out. Like find a way, you know? So it's that alone. I think if you, you know, and we can get into this now, I guess if you want of like old mental game versus now, like shifting it, like there was still a lot of good chunks there. I think of like, you know, you know, Hey, just be adaptable, you know, control the controllables, things like that, that I think are are definitely good staples, but you know, how has that kind of shifted away from, you know, maybe just a traditional, you know, the cliche type, you know, mental, um, mental game or mental performance stuff that you might've heard in the past. Yeah, for sure. Going through, going through my sports like masters and then like, I don't think, and I could be wrong on this, but like the idea of like ecological psychology, I don't even know if it was mentioned, like the idea of Gibson or right? that, like I'll get into like internal, external focus of attention. Yeah. But even that was very much like your information processing as in like, we're just trying to find an automatic movement. Well, unfortunately when the hole was on the mound, um, my automatic movement wasn't very automatic. It was very all over the place. And I was not repeating anything I thought I could repeat um, because what's going on. So like, my old view of the mental game was like, you can kind of take people out of context and then like, we'll train, we'll train a routine. And then when you're struggling, you're just, you're just going to go through a routine. Um, and it's going to, it's going to bring you back to the present moment or a lot of, which I think there's still value in like things like mindfulness, but like, Hey, we're just going to, we're just going to work on our breathing. And then that, that will kind of center us back. And there's still value in that. Um, but if you only work on that, or you only put that outside of the actual context or never put slices of the game, which I know, Tyler, Tyler and Sean talk about like snippets or slices of the game and within practice. If you never, never embed somebody within those environments, it's not going to work. And that's what I try to do as a coach is like initially, Hey, we're, we're going to work on our breathing we're going to work on our routine. We're going to write our routine. We're going to literally practice our routine on dry mound. So like some context, but like, I never, I never forcibly like created holes in the mound and made him throw a bullpen. Um, which I started doing an inspiration a little bit intentionally, like not cleaning up our mounds because like in high school and post-grad, like you're going to face mounds that are going to look like that. And I would much rather guys be able to overcome that. And it'd be something where like, that's just part of them. It's adaptability. So to me, it's like a lot more of kind of like the constraint led approach of the mental game where you're embedding them in a little more representative task design and then allowing them to kind of work through that. And to me, if you expose them to that uh, often, you're going to find adaptability. You're going to find dexterity within that versus just your typical mental performance. You'll read a book or like, Hey, they'll prescribe you like, Hey, read heads up baseball. 
that's great. It's a great book, but like that's oh, yeah. not going to make it live and breathe within a live environment. So that's, that's not transferable in my opinion, unless you're embedded in those situations often, if that, if that kind of makes sense. No, I, that makes complete sense because you know, you, I was even guilty of doing that. Like you have like these little mental imagery, you know, recordings that you listen to you laying on your back mm-hmm. or like you're on the bus and you're like, yeah, cool. Like my so like mental image of, like how I'm about to do something is sharp and like crisp, clean, cool. But then, you know, you add in all the other factors, the actual physicality of it. Like until I started to actually add that visualization within the context of the game, I forget who it was. There was a pitcher I was watching like, you know, uh, MLB classic where this old, old school, I think he's in like the eighties and he was literally like talking to the ball, and like telling it what to do. And I, some, yeah. for some reason that clicked in my head and I was like, Oh, Okay, like I literally have to talk to myself, talk to the ball, like, hey, this is what we're going to do. You know, it, it, that might be extreme or, you know, you have guys like Max Scherzer now who, you know, they look at the hitter, stare him down and they're like, you know, bleepy to bleep this and, you know, just like, screw, like, you know, cuss him out. But he's yeah. you know, literally embedded with emotion, which I think is a whole nother thing that you could kind of dive into as far as ecological psychology is like if you're adding emotion to that routine or adding emotion to something, it, it amplifies it a whole lot more. Skip ahead the next 60 seconds. If you don't want to find out about a company, I co-founded ink sports performance. So here's the scoop at ink sports performance. We get it. We were athletes ourselves, former college and professional pitchers. We were also former college coaches as well. Rob and I, we don't do one-size-fits-all programs. We custom craft each training and throwing program and offer that one-on-one coaching support that you need where you're not just a number. We're all about that personal touch. We'll dive into your training videos, whip up some of the program designed to take you to your next level. Nothing cookie-cutter here. So if you, one of your friends, or maybe a player that you know, is serious about competing at the next level, have, hit us up on our website, give us a call, get that set up at inksportsperformance.com. And also, just a heads up, we're also very selective, selective who we take, right? We only take a handful of dedicated athletes, and if you're not putting in the work, we'll have to say goodbye. So let's ink you in to the next level. Yeah, for sure. And I think being embedded in those contexts, like that's one thing I, I think a lot about is like, how, how do I make the bullpen more alive and alive is yeah. more just like it acts, feels and behaves like the actual game. And that's again, like we're, again, I'm stealing from emergence here, but that stuck out to me a lot um, because if it's more alive and their your players are exposed to that more often, they're going to be able to see again, what they may be struggling with, but two, like the more times they're exposed to it, the better off they're going to be. And you see it like often. And this is, again, this is a running theory of mine. I could be wrong on this, but like how your typical pregame bullpen set up, it's like all blocked and you're trying to do the same thing over and over. You're just trying to feel the pitch. Maybe you'll like do a sequence at the end, um, mm-hmm. but completely void of any consequence or anything. And you go out and you see guys struggle in the first inning and they just think they're not warm enough, which could be true. Maybe a small, um, but I think a lot of, yeah, could definitely could be a factor. I'm not going to discount that, but I think there's a lot more to it where, okay, now that this game's a lot more alive than what I just went in practice or guys who can turn it on, like their bullpen sucked, but they can turn it on in the game. And I think that's 
another thing it's like did the bullpen actually get you ready for that or it's like you need to be embedded in that situation to actually like get the perceptual system connecting to information you're actually going to use to go try to get out which i think is like oh my curveball sucks unless there's a batter in there okay so why isn't a batter in there more often because you want to embed people in those in those environments and again i'm kind of going away from the emotional part but i think that there's a ton of a ton of just carry over when you actually put people in a little bit more alive environments and i think it's I think that again, like controlling emotions and how you use emotions again is very individual and you have to find your authentic way. And I think that's another point I want to touch on on that, um, yeah. which I think is, is something um, I think misused um, because one thing I used to do is try to be that amped up guy, which I think is, is super interesting looking back since if anybody knows me, I'm super quiet. Like, like I'm pretty right. much this through the entire day. Like I'll get yeah, sped yeah. up at times, but like I try not to get like, that's my goals. Like I'm just going to, you're, you're going to see me pretty much stay here. I'm going to stay quiet. I'm going to kind of stay to myself um, just because naturally I'm a quieter person. Um, but like I tried to create this version of myself that wasn't me. And like, I listen to music, try to get fired up and get hyped up and like, like try to do like a little more of the screaming stuff. And like that works for maybe an inning for me. And then like my start sucked because again, like you go back to that uh, Waterbury game. Like I, I have so many other things were going on. I couldn't, I couldn't even use, I was just drained. Like I couldn't even use that kind of emotion at that point. And like now we're, now where am I going to go? So I actually learned that like my own authentic version of myself was just kind of calm, like steady Eddie. Like I used to not talk to people in the dugout. It was like, well, that, that was kind of dumb because like when I'm actually talking to people, I'm gaining information at times, or I'm just like staying in this state where like I'm open and responsive to what's going on. Like instead of hiding myself in the back of the, the dugout, like head down, like at pretending, trying to stay pissed off, like I'm actually engaged in the game, seeing the flow and seeing what's going on. So when I go back out there, I'm just like continuing the game. Like I'm engaged in the game, picking up different kind of information. Um, based on the flow of that, uh, which again, like that's another, I'm kind of taking us in multiple directions here, but I think, I think emotions is a, a super fascinating one. And then um, just how individuals, the individuals need to use that um, again, doesn't come out where you don't find it fast unless you put yourself in those environments often. Um, and it's not good enough just to test in the season because in season matters. So like being able to practice that embed yourself in environments that act, feel, and behave a little more like it, you're going to actually find out who you are, I think, a little bit quicker, if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. Because, you know, that was one thing that if I could have taken anything was, hey, like, make your practices more game-like. It's probably yeah, the yeah. biggest thing I got out of out of emergence. Obviously, there's a lot of other um, things in there that that I've gotten. But it's like, hey, if you can take the representativeness of practice to increase closer to the game your guys are going to be way better off even if it's as simple as just you know having hitters in for a bullpen like you mentioned or you know instead of throwing 50 feet 50 miles an hour like actually have you know some off speed pumped in there or you're at least hitting live abs a little bit more right like having that what blew my mind you know reflecting back on high school is like oh hey we're gonna wait until a week before the season for you to even see live pitching and i'm like yeah. well, no wonder why we struggled to hit early in the season and we turned it on at the end yeah 100 um you know but i guess circling back to that emotion side i agree with you there i i was you know that the false hype or you know whatever you're trying to amp yourself up and be someone that you weren't 
um, also led me to, you know, everyone told me like, Hey, I needed to be this even kilter guy or, you know, calm, cool, collected. But I'll, I also suppressed a lot of my emotions, which I think also kind of affected my game too. Cause then it, then it turned into just like an implosion in, in the dugout or whatever, you know, because I thought I had to control them and I associated control with suppression, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's, what's really cool about, again, like the, the eco theory, heological dynamics, like framework and like the idea of like, you basically are authentic, should find your authentic version of solving problems with the environment. Like you're yeah. just trying to find a functional solution and your best functional solution and like honestly expressing yourself through movement is kind of what you're talking about. Like maybe you needed to be that guy that showed that emotion because that's how you honest, honestly expressed yourself through movement and how you connected to the information or how you found functional solutions best. Um, again, I think us as coaches, like being super player centered or we should be super player centered, like drawing that out of players or allowing them within environments to authentically express themselves or find their own authentic version of themselves and how they connect information and, and how they go about solving problems is so important. Um, versus just trying to like, again, like, Oh, everybody needs to be even killed. Like, no, oh, you can't show any emotion or like everybody needs to be raw, raw. You need to show because I think you see that in a lot of college programs where like you try to create this energy and like maybe your team just isn't a bunch of dudes full of energy, like trying to me trying to like fake energy is the worst thing I could have done. And I kind of realized that later when I started pitching better, I, I realized I shouldn't do that. Um, mm -hmm. But you, again, you don't draw that out unless you as a coach is looking to get every single player in their own authentic, unique way, connecting to that information and expressing themselves and how they solve those problems in their own authentic way. And like the benefit of all that is they're probably gonna be a heck of a lot of better baseball player if you actually allow them to do that. But you have to allow them to explore different activities and like actually engage in them in different ways and not overly constrain them. Like talking about talking about constraints again, but like there's a way to put too many constraints where there's they only can do one thing and it's the, what you think is right, there's no way they're going to authentically express themselves. And I think that's kind of what going back to what you're talking about is like, Hey, you need to be even killed. Okay. Well, that's just constraining you to one way of engaging with your emotions, which may not be your best way. Oh yeah. Well, since we're both kind of pitching guys, we can kind of go down that rabbit hole of constraints too, where, you know, they talked a lot in the, in, in um, the movement Academy where it's like, Hey, is this constraining to constrain and have that one way or one mold like emerge? Or is it constraining to afford them to have a particular movement? Right. So my gross example of this is constraining to constrain. You have bands around your hips, bands around your knee, you know, you have a connection ball on your arm and your throwing arm and your glove arm. And then you also have like, you know, something on your head that's just like, Hey, balance this, like just, so much extra stuff that you literally are frozen, right? Like frozen degrees of freedom or, um, you know, only making you and forcing you to move a type of way that someone outside of you thinks you should move versus, you know, constraining to afford, I think is more like, Hey, show me how you can be more powerful with your legs here. Or, Hey, show me how to not jump with your back leg. You know, you can insert whatever, maybe not as specific, but you're just like allowing them to have that problem be solved in their most authentic way or even posing questions, yeah. right? Like 
how how have you used that i guess in the past year and leading up into now to kind of stay away from that constraint to constrain um frame of mind yeah i think and that's where i think constraints have kind of gotten a bad rep um in some ways or just misused and especially in the baseball world because i mean we've all seen the posts where it's like dude's got a connection ball he's got a band here there's like an object so he can't like rotate off and like yeah there's like four or five different implements like you were talking about but i mean it's like you you exaggerate an example but that's not far off that's really not far off from some stuff that i've seen sure. posted yeah um, unfortunately yeah yeah and i think i think a, a general a general rule is like if if the person can't cheat the activity um so there's literally only one way and cheat all i mean by that is like away from what you think is right. Since I think that's where most people starting this still has that idea of like, Hey, this is the right way this person should move. If they can literally only move that one way that you think they should move, it's probably not a good activity. Um, one, I don't even think you like, if you just logically think through it, like once the constraints gone, like, is that really going to still emerge? Is that still going to be even like going to be there once all those things are taken away? And I don't think it does. Um, but two, like, I think an interesting thing is like how uh, constraining like just information sources and there's a bunch of different ways to do that beyond just like even just movement. And I'll talk about movement in a second, but like, even like I've done bullpens where um, like I've had umpires like, or some of our players just be umpires. And then like, I, Hey, like I tell them like, Hey, stay super tight zone today. So like I'm constraining you from what, what your boundaries are for the zone because that's going to happen. So you have to kind of find solutions within that. Um, so you kind of manipulate the environment or like, Hey, like, where you have a ball off this side. So that's, that's constraining you to like afford now new options over here. Like maybe the zone shifted this way since the umpire set up over there. So you start searching again, that search process is really important um, for new solutions to the problem that you're, you're seeing within the environment. So that's, that's a way to kind of like in bullpens or just like, even you think about constraints as far as like putting, even if you just put a dummy in there and you set them like super on the plate, like, okay, so what options just opened up for you? And what just got taken away? Like, okay, so, so maybe I can't throw this pitch, but now I can throw this pitch. Okay, so maybe I can't work a ball off, so I'm going to hit him. But okay, now I can move it over here, and I can maybe I can front door the curveball, so he's going to back off. And it just kind of opens up opportunities, but also takes away some. Um, and the, and then the movement side, if I'm just looking like motor system wise, it's it's a lot more, I guess, exploratory um, in a, in a lot of ways. Where like there's, I'll give them like an activity where it's like. Um, I know like the back, I'll, I'll use the hinge since I know everybody, everybody like in the baseball community talks about the hinge. Um, so like one thing, one thing we've done is like, if we're just trying to like find their optimal version of the hinge or like allowing them to work through different variations of hinges, like be like, Hey, do do like a jump back or a step back. And then it'll be like, Hey, hold that for three seconds. And then you're going to throw through this target. So still trying to connect them to, to information. And then the three seconds, and so you have to find something fairly stable or you're going to kind of either fall forward, or you're going to fall backwards or whatever it may be. And that kind of becomes a constraint, but there's a million different hinges that you could technically do, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, oh, within yeah. though that parameter. So simple things like that, um, I think is really good. And just allowing guys to, to explore and like you were kind of talking about, I think Tyler highlighted this, Tyler, you're highlighted this to me. It's like, even on the mound, like, Hey, show me, show me how you could, you'd still throw a, throw it on the inside corner while striding across or striding up. And typically like you're guiding, that seems like something you wouldn't want to do, but like you may have them discover something by just allowing them to explore and like 
you're really now opening opening up some different options of what they could potentially do and also think about like hey there may be a time where it strides across a little bit um because the mounds the mounds a little bit shorter or steeper or whatever so it may affect his landing point um we probably want some adaptability within that um but yeah that's kind of that's kind of where i've taken it and again there's a million different ways where it's the environment um the task or the individual oh, but um i think i think definitely like allowing them to to have other options is the most important part of that. There isn't just one specific way and there's ways to maybe nudge them to like the, the way you're looking, but if they don't have those other options, then I think it's useless. Oh yeah, absolutely. One, one thing I like to do too, as far as just kind of helping the athlete, I guess, feel what's might be a better movement, I guess is like, Hey, like you go to a complete opposite of what they're trying to do. Like, Hey, try to do, you know, instead of going across your body a little bit more, open up a ton. All right. And show me how that feels like maybe not a max intent or anything like that. I don't think, but you know, you're, you're going to the extremes of like, Hey, no hinge versus a super deep hinge. We're like, all right, cool. Now find your Goldilocks happy medium in between there. That feels right for you. You know? Um, yeah. I found that. No, that's a, that's we there's actually a guy working with fairly recently that that was that was actually the exact almost the exact example you just used mm-hmm. they were just kind of working on kind of like setup wise and that's that's kind of what what was employed it was like it's like okay super closed off okay let's try super opened up and then just kind of allowing explore them within that range and it is probably most ideal from what from what i can tell is like his most ideal to move like how to set up so he can move most most efficiently um, or most consistently for it's basically just affording him affording him an easier move out of out of his setup um, but again exploring it and kind of constraining him in those different ways which i think the, the opposite i think is a really interesting but it actually works really well um i think it's a really cool cool way to kind of employ that no oh, absolutely and you know one thing that i i kind of had to wrap my head around a little bit more as I was opening up into this type of view, it was like, okay, like, well, what about like physiological constraints? Right. That was kind of the bone pick that I, that I had with, with Sean and Tyler. I was like, all right. So obviously let's say a, a guy has pain. Like we don't want him to just throw variability for the sake of variability at it. Like there's obviously some things that, you know, you refer out, have him go to a physical therapist or, you know, movement specialist to figure that out, but also, okay, when we do start to add the skill, like how how are we sprinkling this in? And I think it's very similar to when you load, you know, we're both strength and conditioning guys. So like you're loading a barbell for the first time for a kid, right? Like you don't automatically go to 225 pounds, right? You progressively overload that. And so I think coming back from injuries, so to speak, I think progressively adding some of those exploratory movements does help out a lot. Not, not to say that you should never do them starting out. Like maybe, you know, um, have a scale of like one to five, five being like the most variability and one being, you know, no variability. Like maybe you go like a two or a three and you have that, uh, you know, autonomy, I guess, if you will, for the athlete to kind of have some exploration, but within a certain means, so you're you're also putting a constraint on the export the exploration, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, for sure. And 
No, that that's I think that's spot on. Um, because that that is one thing, and I think if you scale it right, guys guys start to really learn their body um, really well through that because they they get that little bit of autonomy and like you're not opening up the wide range is like hey hey I loaded up this bar a ton and like hey I'm gonna make you vary your stances a bunch like first time out like that's not gonna happen um yeah. but you kind of constrain them what what he's allowed to do but allow him to open up some different options in the way he may like feel like he should be moving and I think through that you just become super in tune with what you who you are as a mover or what you what you want to do that day versus not and kind of like start understanding yourself and in ways that you didn't before with when you don't have the autonomy. So I was that guy, like I just followed the routine. Um, and it wasn't until recently where I started to take more of these novel movement approach and more exploratory, exploratory movements and kind of like actually open myself up to these ideas myself um, that I realized like, Hey, like I, I probably had a lot more in me and like, I understand like how to come back from an injury way better than they would have played, which is really unfortunate if you really think about it, since it doesn't really matter if I really come back from an injury that fast physically at this point, it's nice to, um, but <laughs> yeah. like when you're playing, it matters a lot more. Right. But that's what I've learned that. And like, what, what, what actually helps me get, feel a little better. What is my actual limits? And you start kind of like playing with that because you, you have that freedom and the autonomy to go do that. Um, which I think is really interesting. And I think another point to, to kind of go off of kind of like adding some of that variability in, if we want our, if I want our players to be robust from injuries, like, I think that's one of the most important things is allowing actually some novel ranges or allowing them to move in different ways instead of this one specific pattern over and over and over. And I think that's, that's been proven out pretty, pretty well in the research. And then just, I know people who have done it, um, it's just you want to be a little more robust to, to injuries like that's that's probably smarter than just like training these very specific patterns over and over and over and over and over um, like your typical your typical setup maybe. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this. And I know uh, Rob Gray referenced this a lot in his podcast, too. It's the uh, Scarborough uh, research that came out in 2018, the kinematic sequence patterns and overhead baseball pitch. Right. This is pinned on my profile, guys, if you want to listen in on this. But right, like the normal proximal to distal sequence of, you know, everything being hips, trunk, shoulder, elbow, then hand, and then the ball, you know, comes out of the hand. There was only two out of twenty-two guys that actually repeated that movement. So if you're if you're still stuck on that, you know, quote unquote repeatable movement thing, like there's your scientific proof that that's it's never going to be the same sequence every single throw. And that was just out of a sample of 10 throws, 22 players. Who knows how wow. many other variables there are, you know, to that, you know, not, not just in the environment speaking variables that way. Right. But more so like, you know, even if you want to get more um, motor system centric or person centric, like you have different anthropometry, you have different, you know, learning styles, like, you know, you, a guy who grew up in Japan is going to move totally different than someone who grew up in in the Dominican Republic. You know, like that, just based off of the the environment that they grew up in and how they lived. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And that that I think is that that research I thought was fascinating, to be honest, because again, yeah. like that's it's out there, and it's it's again, like you still see people trying to, even if they acknowledge that. What I've noticed is 
the practices don't align with that line of thinking. It's, it's like, okay, yeah. Like, okay, that's good. Like I understand, like you can't repeat your delivery, but then you'll watch, you'll watch like stuff you'll see on social media or somebody else like go out and like just work with athletes. And it's, you still see this very specific set of drills that they're trying to do what they're trying to pattern something over and over and over. And it's kind of like, okay, so do you truly understand these concepts or like, is it just something, okay, yeah, that's cool research. And you just kind of move on from it pretty quick because the idea of repetition with repetition to me, was like something I've like grasped onto. And like, I'm, it's one of the, probably one of my tenets. If you look at like how I train athletes is I would, I would rather like always encourage you to move in different ways than not. Like, I think, I think you're doing yourself a great disservice if you try to do the exact same drill or the exact same move, the exact same way every single day, every single time, which is a little bit of me. Um, what I did again, like I wasn't resilient to injury, wasn't adaptable on the mound. Um, like I threw, I ended up throwing harder, but that was great. It didn't help me win ball games once I started breaking down and then, okay, you get to a better hitters and like 91, 92 doesn't exactly blow by them anymore. Now what? Well, I'm screwed. And that's what happened. Um, so like being a, again, like this idea of elite level problem solver, that's kind of what I I'd say, like, I want you to be an elite level problem solver on the mound and like having all these different ways to potentially move. The only way you can do that is moving all these different ways. Like that's the only way. And I think that I think that kind of starts like in warmup and then kind of carries over into like in a typical day, like your plyo routine into your throwing. Like I've gone pretty rogue with that at times and seen some pretty good success with it if you want to call it rogue, I guess, and within this approach, maybe not, not, not that rogue. And then same, same with the bullpen. If you're throwing to the same problems and it's just a bullpen to a catcher without like changing up the hitters or changing up, maybe there's an umpire in there or changing up how you sequence stuff or exploring different ways to do this kind of like different ways to potentially throw a ball inside or different ways to make a swing and miss slider or something like that. Um, you're probably going to have very strict and rigid ways to problem solve and, you're probably honestly going to be broken down a lot faster than somebody that opens up their freedom to move and trains in this rep without rep form. Um, Cause yeah, I, I, I think that's like, if I were to sum up like a lot of my, a lot of my thoughts or just how I, how I would train athletes rep without rep would probably be probably one of the better ones. I think Sean, Sean would probably be pretty happy if I said that. So I know he, he lives and breathes with that idea. No. Yeah. I totally agree too. And I, I think, you hit the nail on the head saying to start with that in the warmup. Cause if you, if you start with that in the warmup, then, you know, you're already setting the tone for the rest of practice. If you have a very mundane and very rigid structured warmup, you know, not saying that you shouldn't have no structure, but um, you know, you need to be like, Hey, like for this, like show me different types of ways of how you can lunge. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus, you know, just, Hey, warm up. Then sometimes, having too much autonomy or, you know, not enough direction can, especially for younger for sure. kids, they might have no idea what they're, what they're getting into. And so they're just like, uh, okay, I guess I'll just hop around and okay, cool. I'm more, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even, even older, like even at the, even at the junior college level, that's why I noticed because I, I, I did the experiment a couple of times. I was like, all right, I'm, you guys are on your own today. Just see what happened. Um, and some, some guys came up pretty good warm up based on kind of some of the concepts you're playing with and how they interacted with their own unique and authentic way. And other people like basically didn't do anything and was like stretching the hamstrings for five minutes. So it's like, that's where the structure I agree is like, again, some constraints on behavior, 
like how they can behave, but within that freedom to explore, like I think the lunge for coaches starting, starting this, I think that's like the classic example. A lot of people use just like a, let them, let them lunge in a bunch of different ways. And I think a good way to do it is just like, Hey, show, show me how you could potentially lunge in a different way every single time down to this line right here. And then I think a good way is like you as a coach kind of show them a, a way of potentially doing that. Um, and then that's typically what I've noticed. Like the first time we do it, they usually like follow my template of what I did. Um, even though like, I don't, I don't technically have a template, but it's like what I did that day is like what they, what they copy or what they do. And then you start seeing some, some, again, I, I prod a little bit and try to like get them to, to go in unique ways. And I really like over celebrate some when guys get super unique and, and creative within it. Um, and then you'll start seeing people really open up and start what I think is the coolest part is when they start understanding what they need for that day or where they're, where they're a little bit tighter, where they need a little extra work and they can build that into their lunch session. Like, okay, I'm gonna do all these lunges, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a little deeper into this one, or I'm gonna kind of like repeat a variation of this one um, because I need that today. Um, where like your traditional warm up may miss that. Like you're just doing the same pattern over and over with no no ability to explore, just like you do mindlessly. So you don't explore. Yeah. You may miss something that you could have used that actually may make you feel a lot better. Um, and again, lunges is just where, where you can start, but there's there's so many other ways um, to kind of just interject that um, into, into the warm up. Super easy. Oh, it's definitely easy. I think, you know, something that a lot of people, if they're looking to try to have some type of practical application of this is, is definitely in the, in the warmups. That's probably the easiest way to, you know, start to kind of, you know, experiment and kind of dabble with a lot of these ideas. It's like, all right, cool. Like how many ways can you do, you know, any type of movement or, you know, a good one, because a lot of people are very stuck on plyo drills and how they're supposed to do them, how they're supposed to move a certain way. It's like, okay, like, is our goal to elicit a specific pattern or to be adaptable? Like, what's what are we trying to accomplish here? And then even then, it's like, okay, you're a pitcher, but you're throwing on flat ground with a squishy squishy ball into a brick wall. Yeah, that doesn't really represent. You know, not saying that you should never do plyos, but if you're going to spend the majority of your practice time doing that, you might as well go, you know, play wall ball. Yeah. Bold, bold statement. You should build but... a little, little more adaptability. No, I mean, I, I think there's something to it, though, because the adaptability you'll create and just like the unique movements, you'll, you'll actually have some freedom within that, um, which I actually really like in like guys just messing around in a wall ball type fashion almost in catch sure. play. And I've seen a ton of success with it. Um, but yeah, I think the plows is interesting because again, like I think as coaches, like they like will over teach or over cue the plows, like to the mm -hmm. death, like trying to create this feel or like, Hey, do this. And it's almost like every rip. It seems like sometimes where like, if again, assuming you, you as the coach, like knew exactly how they should move, like the, the activity or the drill you selected should be the constraint that nudges them to move in that correct way, or at least within the bandwidth of the correct way. If, if you're a skillful coach and figuring it out and at the minimum, you can at least connect them to the information, like, Hey, throw it through this spot, like over and over. And then the variability of the ball sizes will at least add some rep without rep within it, which again, I think that's a, another easy way to kind of interject some of these ideas like plows have that a little bit there's different sure. weights and then you can you can throw it to the same target with the different weights or 
Like you could back off from the wall a little bit. You get a little closer and just changing the distance with your plyos adds a little rep without rep. Um, and again, like what you choose or select as your activity should elicit what we're trying to get out of it. Um, again, always be careful with like assuming we know exactly how you should move. Um, but like, again, like you're, you're setting the activity up for a reason to afford them some kind of movement. Um, and if you need to over cue it, you're probably the activity or drill just sucks in my opinion, which my guess is it doesn't suck as bad as a lot of coaches like give it credit for based on how much they cue, which I think is, which is, which is, I think just a fascinating concept because if it really is, if you're a really good coach, like you shouldn't have to cue them over and over and over. And oh, no. if you're cueing them over and over, you're assuming the brain is literally controlling all these parts of the body. And then if you cue the, this, I think is the funniest one. Like I've talked to people about this, like I'll see, I'll see it post on Instagram or whatever. Like you're cueing the back arm like over and over and maybe like the back leg with it or something like that. But then it's like, okay, well, if you need to cue those two and you need to think about those, like how's your head and your, your torso and your front leg and your hips, how do they know what they're supposed to do? Think about this. And what's a glove arm doing? How you're not putting any thought to that. How does it know what to do? Um, so I think that's just a really fascinating thing that again, understanding these concepts kind of brought me to, so I was the same way, but it's like, if you really need to tell those body parts exactly what to do in space, like you need to think through that and control it with your mind. Like how does all these other body parts know what to do? Like, how do they sequence? Like, I don't know if that, that totally makes sense. If people are to sit back and think through that a little bit. Oh man. Yeah. That's super. I mean, it sounds weird, but it's, it's almost similar to being like, Hey, like if you were driving a car and you told every single piece of the engine to do what it was supposed to do while you were driving it, like that's, that's chaos. There's no way. Yeah. Because there's nope. so many moving parts. And even then it's not nearly as many moving parts as a human body would. Right. Because yeah. if, if you had to like consciously think about what all the parts of your body are doing, I my brain would explode. I don't know about you, but right. especially on a high level yeah. like like pitching or, or hitting. Especially hitting. Yeah. Because you, you have to adapt to even make contact with the ball but it's, you can't consciously think your way through that because it's, you have yeah. so, so much amount of time to, to react and, and make it, you know, solve that problem by hitting the wall. It's, it's yeah. Not- and it may be a, yeah. And it may be a super simplified way that I'm kind of putting that, but like in my brain, it's like, okay, so if you, if you really think you need to pattern this through thought, like how is the rest of your body figuring it out? If like, that's how you have to learn this. How, do, how does the rest of the body learn while you're doing that? Since it's all in secret, it's all together. Like everything's connected. You change one thing, you change everything. We're a dynamical system. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating. That's a conversation I've had with somebody recently. And I was, I just showed him a clip of, of some, um, some guy kind of like queuing, it was like queuing up, like you're giving this dude a cue salad on like the front leg and the arm. And I was like, okay, well, I, what is, how does his back leg know what to do now? And how about the torso and how about the head? Like now is how is his throwing arm nowhere to be in space at this point? It's just, I don't know. It's just like, again, how you view skill and what framework you're working from, like will directly inform, I think how you, how you coach. And I think, um, people are starting to like understand a little more the ecological side, but like desperately holding on to this idea that like, there's a central controller within us based on how they're coaching. Um, and I think it's really, to me, it's freeing once you kind of get away from that because it's like, okay, me as a coach, I don't know need need to know everything. And I don't need to know how to tell them how to do everything perfectly, because if I did, like it'd be, 
me giving cues for literally everything all the time. And that'd be one exhausting, but two, like, what if I miss something? And then, okay, well, that just screwed up the, his entire move. Like, just because I didn't, I didn't see that, was able to cue that up or tell him exactly how to move, and he didn't think through the right thing, right? So, I don't know. To me, it's to me, it's really freeing. This idea of like the body's actually a little adaptable. You might, you might be able to like actually create skill without having this perfectly sequenced move that you thought through perfectly and it looks good every single time. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm on a on a crazy rant there, but I think I think oh, there's something yeah. to that. Well. Kind of piggybacking off of that a little bit, I also would think in regards to the skill, right? Like we don't need to know, have the answers to everything. And we spend a lot of practice time doing like cuts and relays or bunt defense and stuff like that, right? Like you could try to add some representatives into that, but until they actually do that in either a scrimmage or a game, sometimes the super watered down components of that may may not <laughs> show up whenever you're under pressure you know or yeah you, you can kind of add in anything there as far as like in game versus you know water down like walk through of of something right but or even calling pitches i think um not not that a coach shouldn't call pitches but at the same time like if you have that mindset where you have to make every single decision of what pitch the guy needs to throw and they're like you don't know what the guy's thinking. You're like, oh man, that changeup was terrible today. I don't know if I should throw that again. Or hey, I don't have the feel for that. But they can't really communicate that with you, other than shaking yeah. off, right? Like that. That is why I still allow guys to shake off if I'm if I'm coaching and or calling pitches because I'm like, hey, you you know what pitch you can throw with the best conviction for that day at that moment at that time. Not me. Like I might have a theoretical yeah. idea. You know, but when it comes down to it, like, you know, yourself best. Yeah. It, just a, I'll, I'll make a kind of rag on myself a little bit on this one. So like I, I started, I, w- I was a no call pitch and then I started calling pitches a little bit in this fall with um, Tyler junior college. I did towards the end of the fall, like we were, we were testing out using like a, um, kind of like an AirPod so I could literally talk to them and call it in, which I actually liked a little bit better um, because I could almost give suggestions versus like calling it. Since what I tried to do in pens is like try to set up live situations, even if I didn't have hitters, but I'd be like talking through what type of hitter he was, where he was on the, in the dish and like whether we had a stand in there to, to enact that, or at least like I was giving them the problem. They had to, to kind of interact with it, but I didn't have a stand in um, because we didn't have a dummy. So I didn't, I couldn't put anything like that in there, but at least I was giving them the problem they had to solve and see how they kind of interact with that problem. And so it worked through all these different situations and like allowing them to kind of select how they would approach those and kind of like see how they authentically connect with the, the problem and how they went, went about solving it. Um, and then we're in, a, I think we're one of the games and um, this guy like shook me like three times. And like, I thought I was reading the game pretty well at that, at that moment. And like, I was in my head. I was like, what the heck? How, does he really think he's that good at pitch calling that he keeps calling me off? And this is, this is literally this year. And then I sat back like after that half inning and I was like, wait, if all I'm doing and practicing is allowing them to authentically connect and solve these problems on their own. And like, I'm training them to basically tune to like pick up the information that matters the most and what they need to do in the environment. Isn't it a really good thing that they're shaking me off since that tells me they're actually connecting to information and they're like, trying to authentically solve the problems within the environment. I was like, 
that's probably, that's probably actually a really good thing. They're shaking me off. And like at that moment, I like clicked. It was like, frick, I want everybody shaking me off. Like, obviously I didn't go that far, but I was like, <laughs> I would, I want guys right now shaking me off because that shows me like, Hey, what I'm doing in practicing is actually working. It would like literally like an inning before I was like, is this guy serious? Like three times in one inning. Like I thought I was calling a great game at this point. And that's, again, that's just the ego I have a, as a coach. Um, and me not fully, fully realizing like, okay, like what I'm trying to do in practice is like, if I wanted to transfer in the game, like he probably should be authentically connecting to it and not needing me to help him connect to it, if that makes sense. So I just thought that was really, I thought that was really funny. Um, it was like an aha moment. I was like, you're an idiot, man. Like, seriously, like you, you, you're preaching this, you're talking about this all the time. And then like, you get pissed if somebody's actually doing it correctly. I was like, come on, like <laughs> it's one of those moments that you realize as a coach is like not as smart as I wish I was, but it's fine. Yeah, no, it's and like I like that though too because you're it, it frees your mind to be like, okay, I don't need to have all the answers. I don't need to have the the correct pitch call right here, or the the right position for the for the players to be in when when this hitter's in the box. You know the shift's kind of going away now a little bit, but still, like you can still position them at, at, to some degree. But you know, it's it it helps you kind of have a better idea. And even at higher levels now, like some of the guys, they might have played these guys for you know years on end, and they already know. Oh, hey, th- this is what these guys intend to do when they face this hitter. Okay, cool. So then they already cognitively have a uh, jump ahead. Let's say Mike Trout's, you know, someone's pitching and he's like, okay, I know that this hitter does this. He's probably already thinking before the pitch is thrown that this is probably either going to go to right center or, you know, right field. And so he's, he might already be kind of inching that way before the pitch is even thrown because he knows what's coming. He knows, you know, what's, what's about to unfold because of, you know, the guy's a dead pull hitter or, you know, what, whatever you might want to insert there. Cause yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's um I, I even saw myself doing that where I was like, okay, I can kind of tell even if I didn't play that guy, like just seeing a swing, oh, okay, foul ball, foul ball, okay. I'm reading and picking up these pieces of information to find out what's next or what what's more likely to happen in this in this situation. Yeah, and I think that's that right there is like playing a completely different game than I think some people play right now, because I think a lot of people, whether it's just purely metrics, like they, they know their metrics and they have this like plan based on their metrics. This is exactly how I should throw the pitches. And it's like, you know, I was playing a video game at that point. It's like, okay, because I threw this one, I'm throwing this one because if I do the metrics, like they'll play off each other. And like my fastball is supposed to play here. My breaker plays here. I change those best executed there. Um, and whatever it may be. And it's kind of like, it's, it's almost mindless in a way where they're not like connecting to the batter, the actual problem yeah. that's yeah. unfolding in front of them. And I think like, once you get to that point where like, you're starting to like try to see what's actually out there in the environment that might, might invite you to act in a different way or throw a different pitch or like, even I, I find fascinating, like the Nestor Cortez example. Um, oh, yeah. Like what, what invites him to like do a, do one of those weird hitches and then like swing his leg back forward or like drop down. Like there's something that he's seeing that invites that, that opportunity or that affordance in the, in the eco D language, like that invites him to go do that. And I think getting guys to that level um, and whether it's maybe that solution they choose is kind of like dropping the arm like do a hesitation, but there's other, other subtleties they could, they can employ or like throw a different pitch or throw it in, in a different way 
than maybe the metrics read, but they're seeing the problem and connecting to that. And they're starting to see these opportunities or these affordances where they could act in their own unique way to get out. I think it's just a more fun game. I think it's a way more fun baseball game than just like going up there and just like, Oh, I'm supposed to throw it here. I'm, I'm supposed to throw it like this. Um, or like have the, again, like the coach call it. And it's just like, I'm just basically, I'm just repeating whatever I'm told to do um, versus like reading the game and then like having a little creativity, uh, which I think is really, I think it's starting its way into baseball pitching a little bit um, because you see sure. Mr. Cortez, you see like Johnny Cueto um, and you start seeing guys do some more hesitations and stuff like that or added like Sandy um, Alcantara, I think is his last name. Um, yeah. Or Stroman. I think pause too yeah not as much but yeah he'll do that yeah he'll do like a little shimmy at the top but again like they're seeing opportunities for this and they're they're acting upon it which again that's that's a fun game um versus the other way which i think it's just like you start chasing metrics um which again the metrics start to show you where you could potentially pitch i think and like start again opening up and this is this is idea that um i'm like super into right now is this idea of skill Versus like action capabilities, like getting better metrics, like is better, more action capabilities. It doesn't mean you're more skillful, but being able to use those in tandem to the live environment in front of you in the correct situations based on what's unfolding and the interaction between you and the batter, that now becomes a skill. And I think sometimes we stop at the action capability and we're happy with that. Um, which again, like is the complete opposite of how the game of baseball was first started. Like it was all about just beating the batter. Like that was the whole point. Like you're trying to get that guy out and you're trying to be what I would call an out getter um, versus um, just a metric getter, I guess is a good way to put it. Wow. There's a ton, ton of value, ton of value in chasing those. Um, but again, like it's not skill yet. We got to get to that spot where it's skill to ever make it matter. Yeah, no, I, that was very well put, you know, and, and, you have this conversation a lot where you have guys that are like, you know, your training heroes, you know, or the metric getters, like you said, like I, that's very well put because you, you don't want to keep them in that lab setting. And especially in that lab setting, you know, they might be throwing off turf mounds or, you know, whatever, and it's all very controlled. And then they go into something chaotic and then they're like, Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know what to do now, you know, or even guys who throw and play mostly on turf mounds like ACC, guys i think most of them are are turf mounds now and then they go play on a dirt mound and they're like oh shoot you know it's it's a it's a different problem to solve not saying that they can't adapt to it but if they're spending more time on on turf you know once they get to omaha or wherever it is it's going to be uh it's going to be a different story yeah for sure and there's times it and it, i I think that's always an argument. Like you, you create this better metric pitch and it works great. And like, you have a ton of success and like, I don't disagree that that, that doesn't happen, but I think those typically the guys that do that are guys who are already pretty sensitive to, to information within the environment and connect to it fairly well. So I think everybody does it differently and at different levels. Um, but I also think like, just because it works for one person doesn't mean like just creating metrics is going to like, you've seen it a million times, like this dude, lights up the metric sheet like everything grades well but dude can't pitch like you can't put them in a game like Mm -hmm. like there's there's like on a college staff and just a college staff there's like a bunch of guys above him on the depth chart because dude can't pitch um and like just think about even if he can pitch like think about how much better he could be if there literally is not a situation that he hasn't been exposed to which i was i think sean mishka actually quote retweeted this literally today but it was mma fighter talking about how within training 
Like right now he's intentionally trying to put himself in every possible situation. He may find himself within the fight to be ready for that, for that fight. And I was like, imagine if you apply that to pitching and you put these pitchers in every possible situation, just slices, obviously you can't represent it perfectly. Yeah. Starting to put them in all these different situations they may find themselves in. Then imagine the game, how much one easier the game's going to be, but two, like they're going to, they're going to find the solution to these every single time. If you're, they're actually put into those environments and like, like bases loaded, no outs, like when's the last bullpen you threw where you were worried about bases loaded, no outs. There's plenty of guys that get brought into that situation. There's plenty of times in the first inning as a starter, you find yourself in that situation. And that's an important, that's an important situation to be pretty skillful in because oh, yeah. you could really screw up a game quickly. So I don't know, just thinking through, I've been thinking through those concepts a lot. Um, and it's not, it's not easy. And like, I, I haven't figured this, figured this thing out as far as how to do it well, but I think um, being able to expose guys to that, even some of your best pitchers will just be literally that, that much better. And the guys who aren't that good, again, you can scale the information. You don't need to put them in bases loaded and from bases loaded situations, but like you can start adding some of those layers where there's runners on first and he has to worry about that. And then he's struggling with that. Okay. So we can take a little pressure off of it. Maybe we can put him in plus counts with a runner on first. So it's a little bit easier. You, you can worry about it less since there's less pressure here since he can miss a couple of times. You know what I mean? So there's, there's different ways to change the change the information, but I think it's just gonna just would make guys actually skillful versus just like good on paper. Oh yeah, no, that's you know, and that kind of attests to guys who you know they they do really well at the pro tryouts, but you know you get them in the games and they're like ah, not quite all connected. There's there's definitely something yeah. to that, and I think that's why I think a lot of uh, you know, some, some of the tryouts now are, are integrating more, you know, inner squad scrimmages to, to actually be able to not only see baseball IQ and how they are able to play the game, but also see how all those metrics can be applied to the actual game itself and not, not just throwing up cool numbers, lighting up the radar gun or having the best exit velo or, you know, whatever it is that that metric that you're trying to chase so yeah totally what's going may show potential yeah may show potential but isn't until you you in a live environment like you just never you never know how the skill skill will actually play out or if there's even skill in there mm-hmm. or it's just yeah, yeah, just, enough. The yeah. There. if there even is a skill yeah yeah literally and then that just guides your intentions as a coach right it's like hey okay mm-hmm. this is where this guy's challenge point is right? I need to mold his practice, uh, you know, problems to solve around that challenge or, Hey, maybe this practice isn't challenging enough. Maybe I need to amp it up a little bit. You never know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's actually something we started to do at the the division two. I coached that, which again, this is before the movement Academy, uh, but I was starting to play with some of these concepts and just, exposing relievers even if it's just a like midweek side and they're they're probably gonna be thrown on the weekend a good bit but like like instead of throwing just 20 pitch pen like throw a 10 pitch pen and then throw throw to a batter in like a man on second two out situation or like a man on third one out situation and just like we'll, we'll still constrain how many pitches they're allowed to throw but like continuing to expose them to those situations and then you can definitely scale it like okay 
less, less skillful reliever. We're going to bring him in and not a super high pressure situation, but our closer, like we're going to stick that man on third base and we're going to, we're going to put something on the line for both the hitter and the pitcher in this situation um, to kind of, kind of amp it up a little bit, which again, just exposes them to that information. And like, we had a guy who struggled with just with runners on who's coming back for an injury. And like, so we would always stick a man, uh, stick a man on first base. And then like, he really wasn't comfortable with a man on second either. So we just started there and then we started building it on. And then we eventually had a man on second and then kind of like scaling, see how well he was doing with it. And then we'd even start putting some more of the challenging hitters in the box with the man on first or man on second, which again, scaled it up a little more. Um, but I think that just helps them to start kind of like being more sensitive to those information sources and be able to handle those and like picking up what actually matters in the moment um, and be able to figure out still how to find a way or find a solution. And again, like, the first time you want them exposed to it is probably not in season where the game matters. Right. Um, yeah. And I think the more times they're exposed, like outside of the game setting, like the better it's going to get into the game, which I mean, it's pretty common sense, but you don't see, you don't see executed too often. Right. Sure. Or, yeah. Put it into actual practice. Literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I think that's an awesome spot to kind of wrap up. Cause you know, that kind of sums up everything is, Hey, representative design get it get to practice more like the game um but yeah do you have any other closing remarks or or anything else you want to want to kind of touch on uh before we let the listeners go uh not specifically but a, a challenge i always give out um to to people especially as I'm, I'm thinking about it is just like always i always think about like to you like what's the framework i always i always ask kind of coaches that's the thing that changed changed how I coached a lot once I actually had a framework I was working under. Like what what's your framework you're working with under and how is that informing your coaching? And you start kind of kind of connecting those two. And I think it does wonders for you. Um and just to think through this stuff. Like what is what is skill? Like what what does that mean to you? Um and I think that's a a jam-packed um question. If you can really define what skill is to you, I think that also really, really starts kind of like shaping your practice design and how you may, may go design activities. Um, just literally with that, those two questions right there. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. And then, uh, yeah. How, how can the uh, listeners get a hold of you? It's the best way to, to reach out. I think the two, two best way is probably Twitter or Instagram. Um, and they're both literally just at coach G Baker. So coach my first initial G and then my last name Baker on both of them. Sweet. Awesome. Well, appreciate you coming on, Garrett. It's been a time on here. And for those of you listening, stay in the zone.